From the McKinsey Global Institute, it's Forward Thinking with Michael Chewy and Janet Bush. Janet, have you ever been paid not to do something? Wow, I wish I had. But Michael, you really do ask some interesting questions. Hey, it's what we do. We're podcast hosts. Well, no, actually, I can't think of a time when I was paid not to do something. Well, believe it or not, today's guest has won awards for doing just that, for paying people not to use social media, web search, and other digital services. You know, we had a previous guest, Diane Coyle, who talked about how difficult it is to measure the value of digital products when they're provided for free. Well, today, Avi Kolas, with whom I spoke, talks about paying people not to use digital services to measure how much they're actually worth and what that means for the economy. Wow, fascinating. Applied economics, I guess. So I really want to hear more about this. Avinash Kalas is a professor at the Macomb School of Business at the University of Texas, Austin. Avi, welcome to the podcast. Hi, Michael. Thanks for having me on the podcast. I'd love to start with your story. Where did you grow up? You know, what did you study in school? How did you end up becoming a professor at Austin? So basically, I grew up in Hyderabad, India, and growing up in the 90s in Hyderabad, like I saw firsthand how you know important techno- information technology was in transforming society and the economy. So the city, you know, went from like a pretty average city in India to like one of the most important cities, uh, not only in India, but across the world. That really made me inspired to study computer science in college in India. So that's what I did. And then afterwards, I got a master's degree in France and Germany when I switched from with more like studying economics and more specifically using economics to study technology. So, so yeah, during my master's, I realized that there's also this whole world within business schools where you do research. So business schools, of course, like teach MBA students, but on the side, the professors at business schools also do research where they get to answer very, you know, cool questions. So, so that got me interested in research in business academia and, and because I was interested in the, at the intersection of economics and technology, I applied and got into MIT to go and study Professor Eric Pranjolfsson, who is now at Stanford and who was at MIT back then. So I got my PhD at MIT and my dissertation research was on uh, measuring the all the value which we get from free digital goods like Facebook and Google and Wikipedia, etc. So, so that's what I did during my PhD. And then I graduated in 2020. And then now I'm a, a professor at uh, UT Austin. <laughs> Super exciting story, and uh, I definitely want to get into some of the research uh, that you've been doing. But but you you glided over a little piece of your history there, which which seemed, uh, you know, if I recall correctly, uh, you had a, a computer science degree, I think, from IIT Delhi, right? At a, yes. a very prestigious uh, institution, and then France, Germany, and econ. What what? <laughs> a lot of things happened there. What what happened? Yeah, so uh, in my college, basically, there was an opportunity to do a study abroad semester. And I spent some time in France. And I really liked the country, the language, and the food and basically everything. And there was an opportunity at the school where I was studying to do like a double degree with, with the university in Germany. And I was I did not have much of an econ background before my master's because I was studying engineering. So this particular school in Germany, in Mannheim, had a pretty strong economics uh, department. So, so I basically did like a double degree between my school in, in Paris and in uh, uh, Mannheim. Why the subject switch to econ, though? How did that happen? 
What I realized is as an engineer, like, you know, you focus all your energies developing a specific part of a product, like, you know, let's say, let's say the buy it now button on Amazon, right? I mean, it's a, it's a very important piece of the platform and there's a lot of engineering which goes into building it. But in that process, you know, with some of my internship experience, what I realized is I'm more interested in the bigger picture rather than the specific engineering challenges. So, so yeah. And then around that time, I also read The Second Machine Age by Eric Brindelson, who later ended up being my PhD advisor. Uh, and that book, I must say, was like one of the books which inspired me to basically learn and study economics and, and use that to, you know, study technology. Yeah. So that, that's how it ended up happening. Yeah. It's very dangerous what one reads. Uh, yeah. <laughs> speaking of professional career, one of the pieces of research for which you're best known is innovation on GDP as a as a way to measure the economy. A, a lot of us, you know, and a, a lot of our listeners have heard about GDP forever. Um, uh, and it's such an important metric, right? When it's growing, things seem to be good. When it's shrinking, there's a recession. And it could feel like this GDP metric has been around for forever since Roman times or something like that, but, but it's actually surprisingly recent. So wh- number one, what is GDP and who invented it? What is this thing? Yeah. So, you know, the, so first of all, you know, before I go into my own research, I definitely want to clarify that I'm a big fan of GDP and it, it is called as one of the greatest innovation of the 20th century because it's been instrumental in how we think about the economy, right? So GDP basically was created, you know, like, or at least the way we think of GDP now in modern times was created by the economist Simon Kuznets in the 1930s. So it's, it's, uh, it's actually around 100 years old now, I guess. And so this was basically created after the war, you know, like when they wanted to have a systematic way of measuring like the overall like production within a country or within an economy. And the simple definition of GDP, which, you know, is basically that it measures the market value of all the final goods produced in the economy. So basically all the things which we buy and sell on the market, which we consume and not intermediary goods, you know, which are used to produce other types of goods, but the final goods. This is an age-old problem, you know, like GDP measures production really well. It doesn't measure well-being, basically how well we are, you know, from uh, various things which we are consuming. For most of the 20th century, the things which we were consuming were physical goods, so the production and well-being were a little bit at least correlated with each other. Let's say, you know, you double your consumption of a particular type of food or, or you go and buy a new car. So you contribute towards GDP and also your well-being also increases because now you have access to a new good. Uh, but in the 21st century, right, if you use like a free app on your phone and if we increase the usage of this app, then that doesn't really show up in GDP and it doesn't really, but but it increases our well-being at the same time. So this disconnect between GDP and well-being gets a little bit challenging now in the digital age. And and, and that's, how, that's what basically set up the foundation of some of my dissertation research. So the, the fundamental issue, I guess, is, you know, digital products have a zero marginal cost, right? So like it doesn't take any money to create an extra copy of, let's say, a digital file, right? Take a piece of music, for example, you know, you save it as an MP3 file, you make hundreds of copies of it, you can do that for free. So the marginal cost is zero, which means that in a competitive market, like prices of these digital goods oftentimes end up being zero as well, which is why we see, right, online platforms like Facebook and Google search and, and Wikipedia and Twitter, like 
all of these are free to consumers like you don't pay a price to use them and 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 that's when it becomes challenging right let's say you show an ad and then you advertising a certain product you click on that ad go and buy that product and that would show up in gdp but you know how much time you spend on that app like how much time you spend on facebook or you know how many searches you do on google and how that impacts your overall well-being like so that part of the equation is not captured in gdp and and that's a big chunk of the of what we do every day right like we spend so much time online like i mean you know this this podcast we're recording right now like i don't know how much you paid for it but i didn't pay anything you know to 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 download and use it and and it's creating a lot of value because you know i'm enjoying chatting with you but but you know our conversation right now it's not showing up anywhere in the economy like you know it doesn't show up in gdp or it doesn't show up anywhere but it's clearly increasing my well-being and i hope it's increasing your well-being i hope you are also enjoying it but yeah so 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 that's the that's the disconnect between you know gdp and well-being especially when we look at digital goods are consumers getting more value out of these things that they're not paying for yeah i mean definitely you know like just a good thought experiment for that would be right like take google search right imagine a life without google search like imagine you have to live without being able to you know search online i mean i cannot do my job and i cannot i mean i'm guessing most knowledge workers cannot do their jobs in addition to that you know basically you know it's not like we remember a long url or something and go and type it in the browser directly right like the like google search is basically the first step to like going anywhere online it's so so we do get a lot of value from using these apps just by looking at you know how much time people spend and also there is an interesting study done by Hal Varian and others at Google uh, in collaboration with i think some economists at Michigan so it was like a randomized field experiment basically where what they did is they had a treatment group and a control group and they gave both of these groups a bunch of questions and they had to go and find answers to these questions so the control group had to go into a physical library you know search for whatever book they want to and then find answers to you know some questions the treatment group could go and search them on google so you can directly quantify how much time google is basically saving right in terms of finding answers to the most popular things people search for and what they found is like google search like saves like i mean a ton of time and if you convert that time into dollars like it's ends up being a very big amount so these products are definitely very important to like our you know everyday life so basically what we do is we run online experiments where we pay people to stop using some of these products pay people to stop using facebook or google or wikipedia or whatsapp or some of these apps and see how much do we have to pay someone so that they stop using a particular product and that is basically how much they value that product or how much consumer surplus uh, they get from it wait 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 how do, how does this work how how do you pay somebody not to use one of these what are these there's no market price for it you don't go and pay something in the market so if you want to put a dollar number on valuation of these goods we need to think of other ways in the past as i mentioned this google study like people were trying to look at times you know spent on various products and services but time spent is it's not really a good proxy for you know things like and it's hard to also convert that into dollars you know and and just to give you an example right like if you if a search engine is not that great you'll spend more time finding the answer to your question that doesn't mean you know you value that more you know less time is better right for search so so time spent wasn't a good proxy so we wanted to you know come up with a 
new way of measuring this. And so this is what I basically came up with, which is running experiments online. And just to give an example, the first experiment we did was with Facebook. So paying people to stop using Facebook. So we get like a random sample of the US online population by, you know, partnering with survey companies like YouGov or running ads uh, on Google, for example, and recruiting people into a study. That's how we get samples. And then with Facebook, for example, right, like what we what I found during the, my PhD was like, you can monitor when someone is online on Facebook. You know, if you add someone as a friend on Facebook, you can see when they're last online. So basically pay someone to stop using Facebook. Check that, you know, they haven't actually used Facebook for, let's say, a week or a month. And at the end of the period, once they, you know, have complied with whatever they said they would, they get the cash, if and only if they comply. If they have broken the contract and logged in, you know, we see that uh, in because we, we've been tracking them. So we see that and then they don't get the cash. So, so this is how basically, you know, we run our online experiments. So how much did people have to be paid? Yeah, so that's a great question. So when we first started running these experiments in 2016-17, like the median American required around 40 to $50 to give up Facebook for a month. So that's for the median person. There was like around 10 to 20% of the sample uh, who were not willing to give up no matter what we gave them, you know, we offered up to $1,000 and still around 10 to 20% were not willing to give up. And we were really very surprised by this, you know, and we wanted to make sure they understand the question. So we asked them, but it seems like they get the question, but they just, some people just cannot live without social networks because, you know, that's the only way they stay in touch with some contacts, right? And interestingly with Facebook, when we dig deeper into the data, what we find is, I mean, it's probably not surprising now, but back then it was surprising to us, which is it's actually the older people who value Facebook much more than the younger people. And and the reason was like uh, older people did not have other alternatives, like other substitutes to stay in touch with, you know, let's say their grandkids or, you know, rest of the family members. Younger people would readily give up Facebook because already back then they had Instagram and other apps and now they have TikTok and even more apps. Uh, so there was definitely some interesting demographic differences there. I'm curious, you, you mentioned before that a lot of these platforms have business models predicated on advertising. Advertising does show up in GDP. Isn't advertising good enough? Isn't it good enough? Does that not correspond with you know the value that these consumers are getting from using these systems? Yeah, so actually uh, there is research done by uh, Bill Nordhaus who won the Nobel Prize and what he finds is if you look at how much money platforms actually capture from, you know, uh, all the value they create, it's only around 2 to 3% of the total value they create. So if you look at ad revenues, right, like, I mean, uh, platforms like Wikipedia, for example, zero ads. So whatever, you know, value it's creating, like it doesn't get captured anywhere. It's all purely consumer surplus. If you take something like uh, Facebook, right? In the US, I think Facebook now makes like $120 to $130 on average, I think, uh, per year. But globally, it's more like, I-, I might be wrong, but at least as of a few years back, the, like, the Facebook average revenue per user globally was more like uh, $20 to $30, I think, or, you know, or, or, or lower. But if you look at how much value people get from Facebook, from our calculation, it's more like five to $600. So people get a much more value from using these digital goods compared to how much money, you know, these firms can capture through ads. And the, re- and, and, and the underlying mechanism, right? Like there is no law which says that, you know, how clever a platform is at showing ads and, you know, and making you click. There's, 
that's not really correlated with how much value you get from that platform itself, right? You can have a pretty average platform, but with, you know, very interesting ads. So you might click more on the ads or you might have a great platform, but might not show enough ads or, you know, not, you know, good ads. So, so there's no correlation between how much ad revenue they can make and how much consumer surplus, you know, a platform generates. Well, I, I'm curious, uh, you know, what other interesting things did you find? You looked across different platforms. You've started this work a half decade ago. Yeah. So some interesting results include like, you know, looking at instant messaging, right? So in the US, you know, I mean, again, you know, I'm from India. So for me, it was shocking, but maybe it's not for you. But most Americans still use like text, like SMS to, to message people. Uh, and so that was interesting to me because I thought WhatsApp would have a very high valuation. But in the US, not that many people use WhatsApp. Uh, the people who do use WhatsApp really value it a lot. Like in our sample, like it's almost double that of Facebook, those who you do use WhatsApp. But globally, what we found is like WhatsApp is like super valuable, like especially like in European countries. Like one study we did in the Netherlands, like the median person required like four to 500 euros to give up WhatsApp for a month. And so it's a really big number. And we did a several follow-up interviews. And what we found is, you know, like WhatsApp is essential in Europe and in many countries, including India, like not only for personal like, you know, reasons, like staying in touch with friends and family, but also just professional like reasons. Like you actually get work done over WhatsApp in many countries, co-workers on WhatsApp. And, you know, you stay in touch, you know, let's say you text your babysitter on WhatsApp. So it's super essential to survive. So that was... Another interesting result we found. One hypothesis, you know, which I need to test it more carefully. What, what I find is like, you know, many of these digital goods are creating a lot of value, not just in rich Western countries, but in many countries across the world. Like if you take India, for example, lots of people use WhatsApp, lots of people use Facebook. They also spend a lot of time on these apps. They get the same experience as someone sitting in the US or, or, or in Europe. Uh, in terms of the app features and, and, and etc., so so the consumer surplus people uh, like lower income people are getting compared to the higher income people, like it's pretty f- comparable. So so I so I think I think if you look at the welfare side of the equation, like so not just the production side looking at GDP numbers, but also the welfare side looking at consumer surplus. So my hypothesis is is actually these digital technologies are creating a lot of welfare across the board you know, both richer countries and poorer countries, like higher income people and lower income people. Uh, And some of the difference in inequality, if you look at welfare, might actually be lower, given that how much value these goods are creating to, you know, people across the world. But yeah, so that so that is something, you know, I need to test it more carefully. But we, we do observe this comparing, let's say, US and European countries. Like if you look at raw GDP numbers, like some of the countries we study in Europe, they, their GDP uh, on average, it's around half that of US. But the value they're getting from WhatsApp and Facebook, it's comparable to US or even more for the average person. This is a bit of a, a tricky technical question, but I, I'm curious, and I, I know it's uh, sometimes people describe consumer surplus as the willingness to pay, and what you've measured is the willingness to be paid to not use something. But does that actually mean the same thing as like I would pay four or five hundred bucks per month in order to have access to a service? Yeah, th- that's a good question. So you know, so we we when we ask the reverse question, right? Like, how much would you pay for access to Facebook? Like, 
So, you know, and I'm pretty sure Facebook must have done experiments internally as well on that question. And the answer for the median person is zero, right? Because the average person, there are lots of substitutes out there, right? To being, you know, let's say you most people use Facebook to stay in touch with their social network, right? But they also multi-home, right? Multiple platforms at the same time to stay in touch with their network. So if you start charging for a product, and as I mentioned earlier, these are all digital goods with zero marginal cost. So in a competitive market, prices would go down to zero. So it's it's very hard to charge a subscription fee, but you know, so which is why uh, we don't see that happening in the market as well. So in our case, we look at willingness to accept instead of willingness to pay, like willingness to accept to give up a particular good. And you're right, like the raw numbers are not comparable to like willingness to pay figures. But what we are more interested in is changes in these numbers over time. So instead of looking at the levels, we look at changes over time. So with Facebook, right, that's what we find. Uh, consumer surplus from Facebook, it's falling over time. Consumer surplus from Instagram, it's increasing over time. And from consumer surplus from search engines, we also see it's increasing over time. So, you know, so so we, we can look at deltas, like changes over time, rather than the absolute magnitudes. What does that mean for that number to be increasing over time or decreasing over time? How do I interpret that? So if the consumer surplus increases over time, that means people are better off. So that's like a, a better proxy for measuring well-being. So if, if you know, if consumer surplus from you, from you being able to use Facebook, it's increasing over time, that means you're overall better off. And uh, you can use that as a measure for well-being. Having said that, you know, this is all still within the standard economic framework. So as you know, right, from basic economics, there are also some negative externalities, you know, which are not captured in such measures. And one aspect is, of course, digital addiction, right? Like some of these digital apps might be addictive. So in terms of dollars, consumer surplus might be a big positive number, but some of these apps might not be good for you when you account the addiction into, like when you, when you take that into account. Um, so, but yeah, so, so, so in our approach, yeah, we're still staying within the standard neoclassical economics framework, measuring consumer surplus, measuring changes over time. But yeah, in some, in some parallel research, like I'm also trying to measure like other aspects of well-being, including like your overall like happiness or subjective well-being. It's a little bit challenging because the best way to do that is, you know, it's still basically asking a survey question, you know, like how some version of a question asking how happy you are, you know, on a scale of one to 10. So it's by definition subjective because it's hard to quantify that, right? But it's still it's still better than nothing. So 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 the main takeaway, you know, from all this research is, you know, like the objective is not to, you know, come up with one number which which is like substituting GDP. Like that's not the objective. So what I and what we are trying to say is, you know, like GDP does a really good job at mission production. And then our measure measures consumer surplus. And, you know, it, it, it you know, st while still staying within the standard neoclassical framework. So it looks at well-being, like it looks at economic well-being. And then, of course, we also need to do like these happiness surveys, you know, trying to measure subjective well-being. And the idea is instead of looking at one number, you know, if you're a policymaker, for example, instead of just looking at one number, you need to be looking at this dashboard of metrics. And, and, and what my advisor Eric calls, you know, like if you look at when you're driving, right, in your car, you don't have like one number, right? You have a dashboard with several metrics and you observe all of them, you observe how much gas you have, you observe what the speed limit is and all that to, you know, to come up with your decisions. So in a similar way, like policymakers need to be looking at, you know, a range of metrics. 
But that said, you have created a dial, which you're calling GDPB, is that right? Yes, exactly. So GDPB, basically, you know, where the B stands for benefits. So that is basically built based on these surveys we have been doing, trying to measure the consumer surplus from various digital goods. And in ongoing work, we are expanding that work not only to digital goods, but also other types of goods, right? So by definition, right, like any type of good you consume, like the like GDP only looks at how much price you pay for it. But the consumer surplus measure would look at how much extra value you get beyond what you pay for a good. So, so that part is not captured in GDP, but that part is what we're trying to capture in GDPB uh, metric. So how much bigger is GDPB when you include these consumer surplus measures versus GDP? Yeah, so this is like an ongoing research agenda and like we are trying to scale up our, you know, measurement. But just looking at Facebook, for example, just like a single digital good, Facebook, what we find is accounting for consumer surplus from from Facebook alone would increase GDPB, not GDP, but GDPB metric by around like 0.02 to 0.05 percentage points, like, you know, every year. So, so that's a pretty significant number given that, you know, it's just one app. So if we account for all of the digital goods, like including search engines and email and all that, it would be a pretty big number. There are some estimates out there, including some some estimates we have put out, uh, which basically, if you add up all the consumer surplus from various digital goods, it ends up being around, you know, $20,000 to $30,000 for the median person every year. The median American's uh, income is around $50,000 something, right? So it's around like half of that would be on top of the GDP metric, which, you know, which is, you know, pure welfare coming from the digital goods. But that suggests, if I'm not mistaken, that just looking at the consumer surplus of digital goods, your GDP B metric potentially could be 1.4 times as large as GDP without the B. Yes, exactly. That's correct. Having said that, right, like we are measuring these metrics like starting now and into the future, but extrapolate that into the past, right? Some of the surplus from these digital goods is probably, you know, transferred from other types of goods in the past, right? For example, like we don't call people as much anymore because we just message them on Facebook or on WhatsApp or whatever. I wouldn't say that this is all like newly created welfare from digital goods. Like some of that has been, you know, has existed in the past in other forms and, you know, which has shifted from physical to digital. Actually, a really good example of that is the encyclopedia industry, right? Like, so you used to spend thousands of dollars to buy various volumes of Britannica, and now you get Wikipedia for free. So, but there actually, it's a good example because GDP would actually go down because you don't spend money anymore, but your overall well-being increases. So, so whatever welfare or consumer surplus Wikipedia is creating, that's you know pure welfare, which uh, is like you know on top of what GDP you know was even capturing, like and because GDP would have actually gone down. So in the perfect case of the new set of national accounts, you would actually have to count the net of the substitutes, the the things that some of the digital services substituted for and make sure that that all, see how that all nets out. And uh, and you can like do that in an easier way by doing that, let's say doing our surveys annually and looking at changes over time. And and, and, and that would yeah account for some of these substitution effects. Yeah, yeah. Is anybody doing that? So... 
so we are trying to you know we are trying to do it but we are just one research team and you know and so we're trying to you know raise some money scale it up uh, i have presented this work at the us bea uh, but also i also presented it at imf bank of england and bank you know some other national banks across the world so we're like trying to popularize this approach and you know trying to get some adoption but i think there is still a lot of work before you know before like national statistical agencies can adopt it so we are like trying to do all the research to you know help make it easier for others to adopt it uh, having said that you know most na- national st- statistical agencies including the usbea like you know they are severely underfunded understaffed so to create you know or to keep track of another metric on top of what they already do like that would require resources so so i mean you know so so that would depend on if they can get enough funding or not yeah and I'm curious, you touched on this a moment ago, but you know, you, you focused a little bit on digital you know, products and services, but there are a lot of non-digital products and services. Have you used these types of techniques to estimate the consumer surplus associated with those? I think uh, you know, breakfast cereals, for instance, yeah, uh, a yeah, lot of economists yeah. talk about. Yeah. <laughs> it's great you bring up breakfast cereal because as a benchmark, we actually did a study. We actually asked people, you know, how much would we have to pay you to stop eating breakfast cereal for a year? So what we found uh, is like the median person, I think, asked around 40 to $50 like to stop eating breakfast cereal for a year. But if you look at how much money they spend on breakfast cereal, I think the median person also spends around around twenty to twenty five dollars or something. So once you account for these numbers, like the consumer surplus estimate and how much you pay for it, like it ends up being pretty very proportional to each other. But this is for the case of breakfast cereal. You know, it's a physical good. It's a relatively competitive market. So like prices and welfare and like consumer surplus and willingness to pay and all these metrics, like they. Uh, are a little proportional to each other so over time you know like if you eat more breakfast cereal like you spend more on it but also your consumer surplus increases proportionally so so that's what we find in some of our studies as well so so what we found is for things like breakfast cereal like gdp does a pretty good job at measuring production and you can use that as a good proxy also for consumer surplus but for other types of non-digital goods like healthcare, right like it like i think those are like big open questions where we are trying to do studies now. Like healthcare is one market. Uh, another thing is like just environmental goods, right? Like how much better off you are or worse off you are, like compared to past year in terms of all the changes which has you know uh, which have happened in the environment. We, right now, we are like trying to do studies to measure those other types of non-market goods uh, as well. So I, this is really interesting to me, and it's you know some of the research that we've been doing in the sense that, you know, the amount of surplus, and I'll, it, not just consumer surplus, but call it customer surplus too, in a B two B context, we've often found to be multiples of what companies or individuals are paying, um, particularly for digital goods, but not only for services as well, and yet, you know, your example in, on on cereals is a much lower percentage. Is that just because cereal companies are far better at capturing the value they're creating for their customers, or do you, is are there patterns here about you know what percentage of the overall value that's being created by a product and service can a company manage to charge for? Yeah, that's a great question. So yeah, I I don't have a good answer to it, but yeah, at least it looks like in the case of cereals, like the companies are pretty good at capturing around half of the total surplus they are generating and the other half is going to consumers 
and you're right like for some other types of goods like it's the that ratio seems to be very different like as i told you earlier like for digital goods and for any for all types of technological innovations like previous research shows that only around 3% goes to the firm and the rest 97% goes to consumers I, I think I think these are all interesting open questions. Like, yeah, I don't have an answer to it like right now. Yeah, yeah. And we're recording this in uh, April of 2022. There's a lot of discussion about inflation. Yeah. What? What? You know? What? How do you think about inflation in GDPB? I mean, do you have a separate type of inflation on the benefit side? That's a great question. I mean, I, again, I don't have a good answer to it, but. I think one thing we need to remember is of course like GDPB and welfare and all this it's a good metric but at the end of the day right like you also need like food to survive you also need basic goods and services like for your survival and uh, that that's what the CPI basket aims to like track right like you know, most commonly consumed you know goods and, and and try to see changes in prices so so I mean inflation metrics I think are really like you know we should really worry about them but yeah on the other end like in terms of benefits like we saw during the covid pandemic right the pandemic was a massive shock to the economy like but if you look at the digital side of it actually like all of us increased our consumption of digital goods like most of us overnight switched from in person meetings to zoom so welfare from digital goods clearly must have increased a lot during the pandemic but but in terms of converting that into like some kind of inflation measure like that's that's i mean that would be an ambitious you know question for future yeah <laughs> i love the fact that you grounded it in the fact that you know these economic measures are just measures of things and we're people and we have to we have to eat and we have to connect with others and 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 all of those things so with that said if you don't mind i'd love to do a lightning round of quick quick questions quick answers from you and the, these are fun so let's get started other than your own, what is your favorite metric in economics? I yeah, nothing really comes to my mind right now. <laughs> I would pick like productivity as my favorite metric. As I said, you know, in our talk before, like with all the caveats, doesn't measure digital well, but I think at what it is measuring, it does a good job. Just staying within the you know, production framework, it's doing a great job. So I would pick productivity. MJ loves productivity as well. What's your least favorite metric in economics? So I can see positives and negatives to various metrics. So it's it's hard to pick, you know, the least favorite because I do see value in like all the metrics I can think of right now. What would you add to GDP B if you were to create a GDP C? Joking, it doesn't <laughs> have to start with C, but what what else would you like to measure? Yeah, so I think environment is something I would really try to, you know, measure well because it's 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 one of the biggest challenges we're facing, like, you know, questions related to climate change. And we we still don't have good ways of measuring these things. We have like ad hoc studies focusing on a specific part of the environment and looking at some, you know, specific region. But I think environment and measuring environment well and, you know, systematically across countries, like that is something I would love to do. What economics paper do you wish you had written? The, the, the one paper which comes to my mind, because it's, it's, it's one of my favorite papers of all time, is so it's this paper by Nick Bloom in India. So basically, you know, they wanted to measure if management matters to firms or not. So they went to India, like recruited a few hundred companies, and then they did an experiment on companies. They 
created you know a randomized control trial half the companies got free management consulting from consultants they you know hired i think they just paid for those consultants the companies got training the other half did not get training and then they measure you know revenues and productivity and various outcomes and they find a big impact a big positive impact of management practices on productivity i really love that paper not only because it's a cool paper and it's ambitious but it also shows that what we teach in business schools it actually has some value on like firms bottom line so so yeah <laughs> uh, which economics paper are you glad you did not write oh that's a that's a tough one <laughs> There were a series of papers like in the 80s uh, and early 90s basically saying that technology doesn't matter you know like basically they weren't seeing you know any impact on productivity computers started to you know enter like uh, lots of people started getting computers but we weren't still seeing any impact on productivity and there were a series of papers written showing that IT doesn't matter and I'm glad I didn't write those papers and now same with AI right like there there are some papers which say that AI like it probably doesn't matter and you know I, I if I I wouldn't you know bet on those papers like I I think even if we don't see some impact now it's going to come in the next you know decade or so yeah some of that work you know from famously called the solo paradox uh Bob Solo you know d- described it he actually ended up working with MGI later on to you know with complementary work to Eric's as well showing that it did actually matter what did you learn that surprised you most about the pandemic or during the pandemic what surprised me most is most of the decisions made by policymakers like you know let's say lockdown policies or like mandates or which places to shut down which places to reopen and all those decisions like it doesn't they you know it doesn't look like they took a data driven approach to come at these decisions and that was really surprising to me given that this is a pandemic happening in the 21st century we have like pretty rich pieces of data available I did some of you know some research of my own early on in the pandemic you know providing a data driven framework to decide which places should we shut down which places should we reopen You're a college professor what would you recommend that a college student study today So I would I mean I would highly recommend uh, a combination of econ and computer science and the best place to actually do that is in a business school you know i'm biased but you know like in a business school we teach them you know lots of you know we have lots of programming courses like we have lots of data analytics courses i did a cs undergrad myself like and you know cs undergrad is great if you want to think about the theory behind cs but if you actually want to apply it in practice so i think a business you know a business school is a great place to study a mix of econ and cs which is i think where you know most of the jobs uh, moving forward will be in yeah i think in vc circles we we call that talking your book yeah. uh, <laughs> what would you be doing if you weren't a professor i think i would really be in some kind of a policy role either for like like an organization like imf or world bank or oecd or you know one of those organizations or even working for the government so i think i i really enjoy like policy related questions which i try to answer in my research so if i wasn't a professor i think i would be in some kind of a you know policy related role yeah and what's one piece of advice you'd give to listeners of this podcast one piece of advice i would give i think is 
there is a lot of data out there now and you know it's and it's really fun to go and play with it and instead of like just consuming right like consuming like news and consuming research is nice and fun but you know there's also lots of data out there and you can go and play with it yourself avikas thanks so much thanks michael it was really great to have uh, like uh, chat with you Forward Thinking is a production of the McKinsey Global Institute. Find us online at mckinsey.com forward slash MGI or at McKinsey underscore MGI on Twitter. If you like this episode and want to hear more, please subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, or wherever you get your podcasts. Forward Thinking is hosted by Michael Chewy and me, Janet Bush. Our audio engineer is Colin Warren. Thinking is a production of the McKinsey Global Institute. Find us online at mckinsey.com forward slash MGI or at McKinsey underscore MGI on Twitter. If you like this episode and want to hear more, please subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, or wherever you get your podcasts. Forward Thinking is hosted by Michael Chewy and me, Janet Bush. Our audio engineer is Colin Warren. The opinions expressed by podcast guests are their own and do not reflect the views or opinions of the McKinsey Global Institute. References to specific products, services, or organizations do not constitute any endorsement or recommendation by MGI.